Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Are you ready for an amazing show? Today, I have Joe Cummings as my guest. He wrote the very first Lonely Planet guidebook to Thailand back in the early 80s, and You'll get to hear what that experience was like. We discuss guidebooks in general, what they've done for travel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He shares his best advice for getting off the beaten path. We talk about technology and how it can affect the travel experience. He shares a little bit about his time hanging out with Mick Jagger. Yes, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. And stories, stories, and more stories. You know, Mick Jagger's a rock star, but Joe is a rock star as well. I mean, these guidebook authors, when I started traveling, we didn't have smartphones and guidebooks were very helpful for getting to know about a place and understanding, uh, getting some cultural context and historical context and some advice on the things to see and do. And guidebook authors, particularly Lonely Planet guides, were like rock stars to me. And uh, it was really cool to just hear what it was like to be a part of that guidebook revolution and really one of the people that kind of kicked it off because that guidebook to Thailand was so successful. You are going to love being a fly on the wall for this conversation. And we've got plenty more in today's show I'll tell you about in just a minute, but we should get into it, right? We got to get into the intro. So I want to say thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. How are you doing today, my friend? What are you doing? What are you up to? How's life? I am getting ready to move. Oh, yes. The joys of moving packing boxes. That's all going to start next week because uh, we're actually moving uh, about a week from the time of this uh, that I'm recording this intro piece for you. And, you know, moving, I don't know, you know, trying to enjoy the process and uh, 
have a little fun with it, get rid of some stuff. I love getting rid of things. I'm a minimalist, so uh, you know, uh, I'm also a dad of two, so I don't know if my kids are so much minimalist because they love their toys. But if I if I had my choice, I think living out of a backpack or in a suitcase when I was on the road too for so long kind of just got me used to not owning a lot of things. And now it's uh, pretty picky with the things I bring into my own personal life. So um, that's what's going on here. We have this incredible interview with Joe Cummings. You heard it at the top of the show when I sent him a message. I was just so glad that he agreed to sit down and do this. And I loved hearing his story, his take on travel, uh, getting some of his advice, just somebody that's been doing it so long, living abroad and, and traveling and writing guidebooks and just a smart, fun, cool guy. And he was awesome to chat with. And you are going to love listening in on our conversation. Now, let's get into the interview segment, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Joe. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? All right. How are you doing? Nice to see you and good to meet you. Same here. Yeah. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely. <laughs> Whereabouts am I talking to you from? I'm in Bangkok, my uh, my little ghetto apartment in Bangkok. Okay, yeah. In the heart of the city or like whereabouts in the city are yeah, you? Yeah, it's um, I'm next to Limpini Park. It's in, yeah, very central. Sui Lung Suen. So next to the largest and oldest park in the city. Yeah. Do you generally prefer city life? Is that why you're based there or is it more of a practicality? It's more of a practicality. I, actually, I do like city life. But I like it. I don't I like to move around, but uh, yeah, Bangkok is just really good for work, you know, making contacts and all of that. And when I first moved down here uh, 12 years ago from Bangkok, I was in Chiang Mai, you know, and I felt like that suited me better at the time. So I was there 12 years. And then in 2008, I moved down here to take a job at the Bangkok Post. So I was a deputy editor there for four years. And uh, so that's why I came down. And then when that was finished, I could have moved back because I still have a place. But uh I had gotten stuck on Bangkok by then, you know, I'm hooked on all the stimuli and, the, you know, the, all the uh, dining options and seeing new people you know, all the time, meeting new people. So. Yeah, this was something that, because uh, I live in Oslo, Norway, not, okay. not known as one of the world's cheapest destinations, but no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was living in a mountain town in Colorado in Boulder before I came here. I think I was a little hesitant to admit to myself that I liked the city because I never really saw myself living in the city. And we don't live like downtown, downtown, but we're, we're in the city. And then I kind of realized it sort of grew into me sneakily. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, well, there's still some green and there's this, that and the other. And here there's a lot of nature nearby. So I was like, hey, man, I can get down with this city life thing. You know? Good. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how did you end up in Oslo? Oh, you know, the old story. Traveler goes to Brazil for a holiday, meets a, meets a Norwegian girl. They don't talk for four years, blah, blah. Then they meet, they meet up in New York City. It's like a rom, it's like a bad rom com or something, and then man goes to to Norway and and marries her and has two kids. So <laughs> nice, good place to be. Uh, yeah, I have a I have a trip planned to Sweden uh, coming up. I was gonna go. I was actually gonna go the first week of June, but now it's just looking too complicated. Not not just getting in. So I can get into Sweden, okay? I can even transit to Copenhagen because I'm gonna fly to Copenhagen and take the train to Malmo. But getting back to Thailand is the problem. And I don't really, I don't want to stay three months. I want to stay like three weeks. So I think I'm going to postpone it. I already canceled my ticket. I'm going to, I'm going to 
think I'll rebook for August, maybe. I'm hopefully, hopefully by August, I'll be able to get back into Thailand after a few weeks. Yeah, it's strange right now, for sure. Well, I want to talk about that. I mean, I guess I've been, I have started recording as soon as we call because I figure, well, I don't want to miss anything you say, Joe, because I, I don't even know how to introduce you. I'm talking to Joe Cummings. He's uh, an award-winning travel writer and author, but also, I mean, so many things, musician, photographer, translator, trip planner. I, it seems like, to me, just learning about you through research and preparation, it seems to me that you've been traveling or living abroad pretty much your entire adult life. Is that fair to say? It definitely is. And yeah, and a fair, a fair amount of my childhood as, as well, because my my dad was in the military, so we lived, we moved around a lot, including living in Europe when I was like 10 to 14. So yeah, I kind of got stuck on it early. And, okay. And I've lived outside of the United States but over two-thirds of my life at this point. So. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like a pretty direct connection in terms of you, you getting the travel experience as a youngster. How much did that play into your your life as an adult, like be, moving around, kind of being comfortable with that lifestyle? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to overestimate, I, I would say, um, you know, especially that move to Europe when I was 10. I, I remember you know, I, what I can remember from leaving America was that I wasn't that happy about it, you know, losing all my friends. That was in fifth grade at the time, you know, going to a strange place. And I knew there would be different foods and, you know, not the usual stuff. And uh, it wasn't like I was, you know, pounding my fist, my little fist on the floor or anything. But, you know, I was a little bit. It's pretty, little bit pretty dramatic moody, moody for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And then once we got there within a year, it was kind of like the move to Bangkok. I just really got into it. And I was like, wow, you know, this is life. You know, uh, this is this is so interesting. And, you know, I, I look at photos and the few photos I've, that are still around that my sister has kept of, uh, of the family, like, you know, at Notre Dame or wherever, and, you know, whatever, in the early 60s. And and the pictures, are, I, I'm like standing apart from the rest of the family. I'm just like, <laughs> like I'm really like, like I'm already starting to like gather information on some big project. Right. And it's just, it's just I was a weird little kid that way. I think. Is it just like a natural inclination? Uh, it's something that's built into you. I mean, you're a travel writer, so you're 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 meant yeah. to pick up on all those details, right? <laughs> yeah, I must have started. I think it was started to happen then. And I do. I remember also these long car trips to Europe. And, uh, you know, my mother and father driving and they were just the floorboards were littered with maps. My mother was a, a travel junkie and she was really into maps and the guidebooks of the day, the old fashioned fieldings and photos and farmers. So I was really kind of acquainted that with that world without actually thinking at the time that it would someday be a profession. I just thought it was kind of fun. One thing that happened that really changed because I was always good at writing. Like my teachers always said I was like in grade school, junior high, high school and then university. And they were always trying to steer me into being an English major. You know, uh, you know, Mr. Cummings, your your writing is good. You should go into writing. You should become an English major. Study literature. You could be a great writer. And I was like, I'll have I, none of that. Writers are nerds. I'm going to do something way cooler than writing. I didn't know what yet. Um, I know rock and roll star was one of my. I think I was definitely was rating rock and roll star way above being a writer. And then uh, I dropped out of um, college my third year, my junior year, just to take a break. And uh, I ended up driving a yellow cab in Washington, D.C. for about for a few months. Not oh, that really? long. Interesting experience. And, uh, yeah, it was really a good experience. It was nice to just be, you know, take home cold, hard cash every night, be the master of my own destiny for the time, you know. And uh, like one of the calls I got from the dispatcher was uh, to the National Geographic office. 
And I thought, oh yeah, National Geographic. Yeah, my parents subscribed to that magazine. I got, I'll finally see the building. I'll see where you know where this emanates from. And I pulled up, and this guy got into the cab coming out of the building. He looked like Brian Jones. He had like this these tight orange velvet pants, and this like fur jacket and a Prince Valiant haircut. He slumped in the back, and I and I was like, well, I wonder what the hell he was doing at National Geographic. And, you know, after a few minutes of driving, I couldn't help it. I had to say, like, what were you doing uh, at National Geographic? He says, I'm on staff, man. <laughs> <laughs> you see? Yeah. That's when, yeah. That's when it clicked. Yeah, you're like, like oh, right? they're rock stars too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're in the right place. And, and you know, you, you kind of became a rock star in that way, in your own in your own right, I would say. It's fair to say that. Oh, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for that, for that, you know, that, yeah, all these things kind of you think about in retrospect. It wasn't really right. Not, right, wasn't planning. Wasn't right. planning. In the front seat of the cab at that moment, you weren't like, "I'm going to become a travel writing rock no, star." You're just all. like, oh, "Okay, no. something's clicking here." So, like, yeah. going from let's say take that moment to making the transition to like getting into writing and, and and actually being something that you pursued. What was that process for you? I didn't want to be a writer. I knew that, or I thought I knew it at the time. And uh, so, what I was getting into was. Uh, Actually, I was playing. I finished college. I did a political science degree at a Quaker college. I went. To, I deliberately chose a Quaker college because at the time uh, it was during the Vietnam War, and so I, I established myself as a conscientious objector by becoming a Quaker. And I had a draft counselor there, and you know, I was one of 800 other males at that college that were doing the same thing. You know, the temporary Quakers, to, to, because our draft boards, most draft boards, the only moral argument against the war that we accept was the Quaker one. So I, I, I rehearsed all of that, and then, uh, and then I. I really didn't do that much in the next three years after that. I was playing music a lot. I was in a band that was fairly successful in North Carolina, but uh, wasn't like a great living, you know, as you can imagine, but uh, just playing small clubs. And uh, and I read this book. I came across a book written by a monk in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He became very, very famous later. He was a little bit less famous then. He's, he passed away in 1993, and it was translated into English, and it was just really kind of hit me at a time when uh, I was a little bit, you know, without a rudder, shall we say. You know, I wasn't, music profession wasn't really turning on me on that much. It wasn't, didn't look like there was much future. Um, you know, I was just, you, you just, I was looking for a direction anyway. So I, the, this monk in Thailand appealed to me. So I said, I'm going to Thailand. How can I get to Thailand? So I, uh, I joined the Peace Corps and that's how I got to Thailand. So um, I came here to do that. And then I really got turned on to Southeast Asia, Thai language, Thai culture, the whole deal here, the Mekong culture and all of that. So when I finished with the Peace Corps, I went straight to uh, graduate school at Berkeley and did a Southeast Asian studies program. And it was while I was there, um, oh, I missed the part there. When I was coming back from Thailand to the States, I took a trip through India and Nepal and I picked up, I went to a bookstore and I'd already seen Southeast Asia on a shoestring, the Lonely Planet Guide, and I really liked it. I, I could obviously see this was a new paradigm in guides. This is way cooler than my parents' guidebooks, the three Fs, you know, folders, farmers and fieldings. And it was very underground at the time. It felt very underground. And um, so I kind of, I looked to see if they had any guidebooks to India or Nepal because I was going there. I looked in the Bangkok bookshops and I, and even wrote to the company, I think, just as a reader. And uh, they didn't have any guidebooks yet to India and Nepal. They didn't have one to Thailand yet, but they had Burma and Sri Lanka. And I picked up, I bought both of those books in Bangkok, Burma and Sri Lanka. I didn't go to either country until many years later as an updater for Lonely Planet. Went to India and Nepal, read those books while I was traveling. And then while I was finishing my master's degree, I thought, 
uh, what, what's next? <laughs> Master's degree in Southeast Asian Studies doesn't get you much. So I wrote a letter to Tony Wheeler um, offering to do a Thailand guide for them and you know, suggesting they should do one because even then, that even in what, that it was 1980 that I wrote to him, there were double the amount of tourists in Thailand and probably Burma and Sri Lanka combined. And he said, and he said, go. He was like, he was into it. I, I did some sample writing for him and he sent me uh, $9,000 and I was on my way. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, because I came across an article you wrote on CNN a little bit uh, yeah, back, yeah, and it was yeah. uh, it was about your experience creating the first Lonely Planet guidebook to Thailand in the early 80s, and um, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, I'm like going to email this guy right now <laughs> because I need to hear some of these stories, and you know, to me, like you mentioned the rock star thing, and like when I started traveling, I was using guidebooks, and Lonely Planet was, I mean, it's like... I would say arguably one of the sexiest brands ever created, right? Like you go into a bookstore and you look at that travel shelf and you see those Lonely Planet books. I mean, I, you know, this is not like my normal thing now, but like back then, especially when I was starting out, it's like they're just the covers and the images and like just how it looks. You're just like, I want to be in all of these places right now, please. And um, and I saw the guidebooks writers for Lonely Planet and some of these other budget guides as like, they were like rock stars to me. I'm like, wow, you're getting paid to like cruise around and, and write about these places. It's like, seems like the greatest thing ever. I, I mean, was it at the time? I mean, he did this. I mean, and this it is- It was, a, it was great. This Especially is a different era, of course. But yeah, talk about what that experience was like uh, just going through Thailand in the early 80s and writing this, this guidebook. It was such a new thing. There were, there were a couple of things that made it really cool in the beginning. One was that it was a fledgling company with a lot of freedom, you know, and the content was completely decided by the author. So the whole thing was author-driven. That was, that was really important. So, I mean, you could just, you know, you, were, you just felt great. You felt empowered, shall we say. Uh, the second thing was that nobody had been writing about this region, and it was, you know, it was the, my guidebook for Lonely Planet was the first guidebook in English to, to the country since 1928, and so I didn't have much reference material to go by. So it was a real pleasure and a real adventure just to be bombing around the country, not knowing exactly what you're looking for. I, you know, I found threads of things. I found some stuff on archaeology and architecture that kind of formed my path a little bit. I said, okay, these are some famous temples I need to see. And, uh, but not much, it wasn't much. And there wasn't even much guidance on beaches and now beaches are one of the big things, right? So I would just, uh, I would rock up in a small town and just start asking around in markets, especially night markets where people were more, had more leisure time and more alcohol to sort of loosen up the, uh, the tongue and the mind. And then, you know, people were very generous. They'd put me on their motorcycle and take me out to see sites. So they'd invite me to their homes. They'd explain to me about the cuisine. And uh, I'd, stu I'd studied Thai intensively when I was at Berkeley. So by the time I started the Lonely Planet Guide, I was already fluent in Thai. So I was able to get, I was able to get all of my information, virtually you know, 99% of my information was coming directly from local people. So that, as long as that lasted, you know, and, and then the freedom to decide what goes in the guide, it was, uh, yeah, it was a dream job for sure. And the money turned out to be good. I ended up getting royalties by the second edition. Because Tony actually said to me, how did you feel about the payment you got for the first edition, which was 9000 And I was thinking, not bad. That was pretty good, you know. I was okay with it. I bet that uh, went a, a bit of a ways in uh, Thailand yeah, of course, at the time. 1981 was the, <laughs> was the research trip. So, yeah. Um, and I had my airfare paid back and forth already because I was doing – I doubled it up with some field, a field uh, research that I was doing for my final thesis at, at, at Berkeley. So, I did – I rolled the two trips into one. 
I mean, it was just luck. It wasn't like I'm a mastermind at this thing, but I just, so I got, I got a double dip, so to speak. So the nine grand pretty much just stayed in my pocket. But so I was pretty happy. But when he said, are you happy with that money? This is a story I've never told anyone, by the way, but what, what the hell? Go for it. Because uh, it's a, it's a, there's a dark side to it, but I'll get to that. Um, he said, well, before I could even answer, because I was thinking to, in my mind, I'm like, oh, what's he going to do? Is he, he going to give me more than 9000 this time? What's he talking about here? And he said, because what I'd like you to do, what we'd like to do is um, put you on royalties, give you a percentage of every book sold. And that eases our cash flow. And you'll, and you'll make more money. I guarantee you'll make more than 9000 And I was a slightly skeptical, but I trusted him. I said, yeah, all right, let's do it. Well, as it turned out, I made way more than 9000 doing the royalties. And so, so the, you know, that combination of things, I, I, I was on a, uh, you know, I was like on a 16-year high, let's say. Uh, yeah, and until the royalties were taken away from me in, in 2002. That's the dark side. And uh, anyway, I don't want to go any further than that because, you know, I want everyone to feel good about this experience. Right. No, I understand. That's a... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, I mean and you one of the one of the people that helped kind of establish that company so early on. It's That's it. That's it. That's why it uh, that's it. Anyway. Yeah. Business is business is business and they had to do that to sell the company to uh BBC Worldwide. Right. And the, and then I think it changed hands into like a tobacco company or something. I don't 2 know. years after that. Right. They sold it. Tony sold it to uh BBC Worldwide for 260 million dollars. 2 years later BBC Worldwide, because they botched, they couldn't, they didn't know what to do with the brand. Maybe the brand had already peaked also, I would say, because that was 2006, 2007. And to me, the brand peaked by 2005. Um, they sold it for half what they paid for it two years later. So they took a big loss. And then, and now I would say that the current owners, you know, I've never met them. I don't know anything about them. I would love to meet them and chat with them and you know, ask them to somehow restore the vision because then you might be able to rebuild this brand. But they, you know, even before COVID came along, they were in trouble, and now COVID is as pretty much has the company on its knees. But it's still, you know, still hanging in there, and I hope, I hope they survive. Yeah. Hey, maybe we can chuck some cash in, get some of the listeners involved. You know, maybe we can get it back yeah. on track. I don't know. <laughs> put, put me in charge. <laughs> you got it. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic 
destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. How much does speaking the local language open up travel, the travel experience for somebody? It's hard to... It's just... Amazing. I mean, I know the difference between when I was there in the Peace Corps, and of course, I learned some then. You had a training, and I, you know, after a year or so, I was really good in conversational Thai. I couldn't really read, I could read a little bit, but, I could, but it, it just made the experience so much better. Um, it just felt like you blended in for one thing, and then you, when you needed something and you needed information, you just needed something, you know, transactional in your life, you know, medical treatment or food or whatever, that made it a lot easier. But then when I came back, after having been at Berkeley for two years, and I was, then I could read and write, and then my vocabulary was you know, ten times larger, and the experience was really strange to like land at Don Leung Airport, and just get in a taxi ride from the airport into town. I'd been gone for two years, you know. Normally, you go away from a country for two years, and you're you're rusty in their language. This is like infinitely the opposite. It was like my eyes had just opened up. I could read every billboard on the way, and it was just like. It was like a, a mind-altering experience almost. Um, but, you know, most people aren't going to go that far. But I, 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 I try to make a point myself now. When I, if I'm going to spend more than a week in a place, I try to learn some of the language. You get, carry a phrasebook or a translator and make an effort. I think it's appreciated, you know, by the, the host country. They appreciate it. And uh, it's just fun. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's just fun to do that. I mean, my, my Norwegian is, is not so great, but... It's good. I mean, I can speak it, you know, and understand most of it. You know, people just appreciate that you're in their country and you're speaking their language. And I know it's not possible for everybody. I mean, if you're traveling through a place for three weeks, I mean, certainly everybody can learn a few phrases and kind of at least give it a go, you know? That's what they, uh, I think they should. Yeah. Yeah. Writing a guidebook is such a monumental task. And maybe this is getting into more of your creative process. And I'm sure that's evolved in different ways over time. But especially thinking about like the first guidebook and you're, you're, you're out in the world. And this is always a question I like to, to ask travel writers because you're trying to balance this. You got two things going on in your head, right? You're like, all right, well, what's the story here? What, what kind of information do I need to capture? How am I going to present this versus, okay, let me feel this. Let me experience this. Let me like be a part of this so I can get the emotional side and understand what that means. But also your brain can't help but think like of different sort of ideas and ways you may cover it. So I, I, I think you're, hopefully you understand what I'm saying. I um, do. Is, is that something that you struggle with? How do you balance that creatively? How does that work for you? Yeah, I do struggle with it. And it's, and more so now in the kind of writing I've been doing since 2006, which is when I more or less stopped doing guidebooks. I've done a little bit of guidebook work since then, but with guidebooks, you're not so most, not so much you're paying to the, 
paying attention to the emotional side. I mean, you are a sum because you need to have some inspiring words for the readers, even in a guidebook. So you do have that that veins going on. But mainly you're just get, getting information. You're just a, a data uh, scoop, so to speak. Um, and the other thing is you're trying to divide uh, essential from non-essential experiences. That's a big part because you can't write about everything. And uh, it's like what makes a good guidebook writer, and this is the same for feature writing, is deciding what is most essential for readers to know or to feel, to experience, not necessarily, you know. There's a practical side, a service-oriented side, and then a sort of a, a the story-oriented side. But after I started getting into feature writing and, and longer books, coffee table books, because I've done quite a few of those, then it became much more of a challenge to balance those because I was constantly having to remind myself that, you know, I, there's got to be a point to this story. It's got to have some kind of, it's got to have a, a storyline, let's say. So, I, you know, always looking for that storyline, always looking for inspiration. And somebody doesn't come until after you come home, but at least you're, it's usually based on something you picked up and you're going through your notes and you something you didn't think was that consequential. You suddenly pops out the notes, you go, oh, there it is. That's my lead. Or that's how I'm going to finish. Or that's, oh, I'm going to make the story about this, not about what I thought I was going to make it. And the other thing is staying open too not being too rigid and I try to pick my assignments and make my pitches for assignments so that it's not too lockstep, you know, what the this, this story is going to be a little bit open-ended. Like I'm working on a story for CNN now about Anthony Bourdain and, and, uh, and I deliberately left it vague. I said, I just want to do a story on Bourdain. Do you, would you like me to do that? Um, you know, cause I worked with him and I, you know, he was a hero of mine, a hero of all of us. And it's just, uh, I thought it might be interesting to them. And, uh, but but I don't really have an idea exactly what I'm going to say. I'm just starting it now. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing. I'm doing more and more research. So um, it's important for me to have a, a little bit of leeway there, and not be. That's why I don't do news. You know, I, I wouldn't be a good news reporter. Mm. Yeah, uh, just that you want you want to have yeah. the the openness in terms yeah. of uh, where it can go. Yeah, and I want to feel something and communicate it. You know, and, and for news, you you, know, you don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the key, right? Feel something and communicate it, and that's. That's a great way to put it in terms of like maybe the order to do it. And I, I, I ask a lot of these questions selfishly because these are things that I struggle with as well. So I always like to hear how, how other people handle these things. I mean, a lot of it comes to the research. I always think, you know, when you kind of like if you really need some inspiration and you're not getting it, I just I do more research. That's my default. More research, more research, because then sometimes something jumps out. Or read other writers. Try to find. I try to find literature. I must even. I'm thinking even with guidebooks. When I was doing the, uh, a Baja California guidebook for another publisher, Moon, turned out to be a really big seller. seller and I had a lot of fun doing it. I even moved there for a while. Um, but I was looking for that emotional center to make the writing more inspiring for the guidebook. Because uh, it was a Moon like Lonely Planet gave the author a lot of freedom to sort of do that. And it just wasn't coming. You know, I was working on it for about a year and. Uh, and I finally read, read John Steinbeck's uh, nonfiction book called Sea of Cortez. It's his log about taking a ship called the Sea of Cortez through uh, down the California coast and up into the Sea of, into the Gulf of California or the Sea of Cortez. And um, it just, it, then I did it. I got the inspiration. I got everything I needed. I needed, I got the juice that I needed. Yeah. It's amazing how another piece of art like that can kind of add this injection into your work uh, and just inspire it in a different way. Since you're past sort of the guidebook stage of, of your career, I guess it sounds like, or well past it enough to kind of reflect on that, I'm wondering if you could share some thoughts around 
the impact of guidebooks. And I'll use a specific example. And I don't know if this is fair to say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I got from the CNN article, what I gathered, one thing is like, I'm like, did Joe kind of create the beast that is Kosan Road? Like, you know, and if nobody's familiar with that, that's like sort of the backpacker haven if you go to Bangkok. And like, that's the street where like, there's all kinds of places to stay and places you can book travel. And I mean, Joe can describe it better than I can, but that's like a specific example, right? I think, especially in the early years, I think, you know, you had guidebooks and just travel writing in general had a lot more impact back then, let's say in the 80s and the 90s. I remember there was a cover story on Thailand for, for uh, Time magazine that Pico Iyer did. It was called State of Grace was the title. It was a great, great title. And uh, when, uh, talking to travel suppliers here in Thailand, by the time I knew lots and lots of people, I had tour companies, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. They said that article had more impact than any piece of writing before that or since then, you know, up till now. I don't know. Um, so you know, I think certain pieces of writing can can make it have that impact, and then a lot of times people think it has influence where it doesn't. They'll go to a restaurant that's like full of people carrying Lonely Planet guide, for example, and they go, "Wow, this restaurant has been ruined by Lonely Planet," and uh, and then I'll hear about it, or someone will just say that to me, and I was like, "It's the restaurant." That I didn't recommend even. And so it's just a coincidence that, you know, it's a correlation they're making between people carrying the guide and eating at a place. And, and be, I, as far as I can tell, people never took my recommendations about where to eat. I think, uh, but I think they took my recommendation on a neighborhood to stay in that, that turned out to be Kaosan. Either that or it was a total coincidence. And that's also possible. It's just the timing was like that. You know. well, what do you think about guidebooks like what they've done for travel I, w- I would say i would categorize this to the good the bad and the ugly <laughs> yeah yeah but people were when people when it got to a point where people just you know they're just walking down the street with their nose in the book and they're not even looking around it's like it was almost like looking at a mobile phone nowadays you know people do that now with smartphones but the, the guidebook was like that for a while they would be buried in the book walking down the street oh this is the place and then get in the restaurant and then while they're eating they look buried in to talk you know look where they're going to go so that was too much you know, for me, that was like, and that—that's not the fault of the guidebooks, really. That's the—that's—that's that's mass travel. That's like the lowest common denominator. I mean, once travel just—I we used to think of places like Southeast Asia and Africa and the subcontinent, South America, the third world, shall we say, as being, you know, very adventurous places to go. And mass tourism—it was off limits to mass tourism for many reasons, mainly lack of infrastructure. So it was only sort of the bold, the avant-garde among travelers who would go there and they and they weren't they were more sensible what's the word more uh, resourceful than to rely on a guidebook even if there were guidebooks they were they were just sort of a side thing for them but then once mass tourism was funneled into these more adventurous zones then uh the people weren't so adventurous and then they they were addicted to guidebooks so you know what i'm saying it was like it was like a change in the culture of travel in these parts of the world. And nobody was saying that about Paris, for example. Paris was full of people using guidebooks, too. And, uh, and in terms of tourism, I remember people, someone saying to me, oh, Bangkok's overrun by tourists now. This was back, this was probably back when Bangkok was getting maybe 4 million tourists a year. And at the time, Paris was getting 40 million tourists a year. And I pointed that out. And it's like, you know, it's just because, you know, you're trying to you you expect these people were, ex, were expecting these so-called third world zones to be free of tourism, but but they no longer are now. They're they're subject to mass tourism. Only almost no corner is untouched now. 
And I don't think that's the fault of guidebooks. This is what I'm trying to say. I think it was the, the change in the market that just dragged guidebooks along with it. It did change something, the success of guidebooks. And there we go into the, well, it's not what it's called, the dark side. But it's for me, it was a big decline in the motivation to do guidebooks was when they became so successful. They were selling so many millions. I mean, Lonely Planet and other guidebooks as well. Just the publishers were just minting money, basically. I mean, by the time Thailand had sold two million copies, it had become a very valuable commodity to Lonely Planet. And the same with all their other top 10 or top 20 rolling printed guides. And so they started getting very uh, conservative about what they put in there. They didn't want to take do anything that might send the market south. And, uh, and that included like putting in, I remember getting one of my manuscripts back, update manuscript, maybe it was on like the 10th edition or 12th edition, you know, I've been doing it. I did it for 25 years. So it was somewhere along the line, I remember getting feedback from an editor, from a, a young editor at Lonely Planet in Australia who had never been to Thailand. I don't think ever had been outside Australia. And she said, uh, well, I see you have this town, Chiang Kham, in northern Thailand in the guidebook. Uh, well, we noticed that Fodor's doesn't have it. Frommer's doesn't have it. Rough Guy doesn't have it. Do we really need it? And I wrote back and said, you know, Lonely Planet made its name writing about places that no one had ever written about, maybe never been even. And now you're comparing yourself to those others and you want to be like that? I didn't say quite that harshly. And I, and I bent to their will. I, we, we, they took the city out. I couldn't, I couldn't resist by that time. By, time, by that time, it was, it was top-down driven. And they were using focus groups and things like that you know, for marketing. So the whole guidebook thing got really corporate. Travel got corporate, uh, travel in these parts of the world. So yeah, guidebooks got sort of, the glamour sort of faded by around, yeah, 2004, 2005 for me. Now, the, for me, the peak was mid 80s to mid 90s. Yeah. Like, you know, the almighty. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's just interesting to hear your take, being right in the thick of it, you know, for, for those years and seeing, you know, the whole progression. In my opinion, if they want to survive and gain, I mean, it's not like there's still a front runner in the market or were, they need to go back to that, uh, have the kind of vision that Tony Wheeler had before he sold it, which was, you know, leaving no stone unturned and then let, let the author lead the way again. In sort of the age of mass tourism, we could say, well, obviously, what, nobody's traveling right now uh, because of everything that's going on with the pandemic. But um, what advice do you give to somebody to get off the beaten path? and stay off it. Is there, is there even an off the beaten path anymore? <laughs> well, there is, there is. I mean, I mean, even in the most touristic country in the world, there's, there's off the beaten path. There's smaller towns. Once you find towns that don't have some major historic site or some major natural site. And, uh, you know, that's where to look to start. You start with that. The other thing is to look for local now in the age of internet, which is fantastic for gathering information when you're traveling. You can, um, Look for local bloggers and because local people, the local insight will always have stuff that's a little more hidden from the major guidebooks or the you know, trip advisor, for example, and other crowdsource information that's all just sort of tourism industry related or um, targeted. And uh, so that's I, I look for like local insight on on things to do and places to eat and fa even fashion, you know, what part of the city is known for, you know, the hippest fashion and I mean, yeah, you just go wander around. I was in Tbilisi last year in Georgia, and I got into the underground theater 
scene there. Just, I mean, just as a spectator. And I, and I did it just so I, because I knew it would get me away from the mainstream tourists down in the main square and went to the, the, the saunas by the river and all of that. And uh, so there's, there's just lots of ways to get out there. Just heading to smaller towns, looking for niche, uh, your own niche interests maybe. But uh, anything that's not, that you wouldn't see on, uh, you know, National Geographic Traveler television. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know you've got some stories. I'd love to hear one, uh, maybe an example of... Uh, of getting so far off the beaten path that maybe you were like, I, I think I'm too far off the beaten path. This is a little uncomfortable. <laughs> that happened so many times. So many times. You know, so many times I'd be out there somewhere. I mean, yeah. When I would just think, uh, I don't know, I'm lost now. But, you know, might as well not go back. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just having such a insular good time I, I, I think that would be speaking one time I spent four consecutive months in Myanmar I would come back you could, back then you could do this I'd go in for a month I was working on a updating a, 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 an edition for Lonely Planet and you got go in for you get 28 days and I'd fly back in the morning get my visa application in the morning pick it up in the afternoon and fly back that evening and you could get away with that and I did that for four consecutive months and I got lost out there I was I remember being out in Sightway and just I was losing track of time. It was like a you know, Colonel Kurtz thing almost in a minor, in a minor way. So that, well, that's not really a story per se. I, the other major event that happened uh, for me was um, in the late 80s, I was on the coast of West Java doing Indonesia for Lonely Planet. And, uh, and I was at Charita Beach and, and in the distance, 50 miles off the coast were the, the, the small islands that are the rema uh, remainders of the rim of the crater of the Krakatoa or Krakatoa volcano, the greatest volcanic eruption in recorded history, eruption in recorded history back in the 1800s sometime. And I thought, well, this needs to go in the guidebook. And I started asking around, no, there's no boats out there. Um, I found a fishing boat and a few other travelers that were willing to chip in and get these guys in a fishing boat to take us out there. So we got in there, it was 11 of us, and a crew of three, probably a 22-foot boat, one half cabin, very short on the top. And um, we got out to the the islands, and they were beautiful. It was, they were steaming and, you know, lava pumping out, and we felt really adventurous and everything. It took, they, they, they said it was going to take four hours out and four hours back, and it already took us seven hours to get there. So we thought, well, we're going to be driving, we're going to be uh, sailing in the night, but that's okay. And about an hour off the islands coming back, the engine conked out. They couldn't get it started. And as they were trying to repair it, a huge tropical cyclone came up. And that our little boat was tossed and turned for the next 26 hours. We were on the, we were on the verge of capsizing every five minutes, as it felt like. I mean, with these huge swells and the boat would be up at the top. We all be thrown across the was holding on to different parts of the cabin. Waves are rushing through the boat. But every one of us, including all of the crew, totally 100% sure we were going to die. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the next, you know, the, the, the storm subsided and uh, the guys got the engine going again. But they took it apart with a hammer and chisel. They used shoe leather to make a new gasket because they'd blown a gasket which is an amazing ingenuity. We made it back like another seven hours after that. And we had no, no food or, or water the whole time or very little. There was a couple of snacks. So that was a big thing. I wrote about it for a, a 
a travel literature collection that came out I think, in the early 90s. But that was uh, that was the time when I was thinking. And the thing was, I was so driven by my assignment. I remember my imagination of if this damn boat goes over, if we end up in. I just my, my image was me holding my notes over the head. Like right, this, like right. I can't lose, I can't lose my notes. Right, you know, because that's the like, that's the big concern. Yeah, I, was like, <laughs> I look back again. I'm like, what was I thinking? That was like ridiculous. Wow, that is just putting myself there. 26 hours. That is, that's a marathon, man. No food or water. Like, yeah, the nerves, yeah, the, the nerves, the amount oh, of yeah. uh, stress on your body emotionally, not to mention physically. And watching every, all the people reacted differently. It was like, I, I thought about writing like a story about it that's not as, you know, like a fiction thing because it was almost like, what's that bridge over San Luis Rey? It's like one of those situations where everyone's true character comes out, you know? This one couple that seemed like the ideal couple, both really good looking. They just separated from each other and ignored them, each other for the rest, the entire rest of that emergency. You would think they would be cuddling and holding on to each other. They wouldn't even speak to each other. And uh, the most macho Australian guy with the, the muscle... He totally freaked out and was crying. We were all holding on to him and trying to calm him down. You know, everyone was different, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can laugh now because you all survived, but that's yeah. uh, it's a wild tale, man. That's, um, yeah. yeah, that's something you're not going to experience sitting at home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and I always say I have this motto on my, my slogan on my Instagram too, or is it my Twitter? One or the other. You know, misadventure beats missed adventure. You know? Yeah, that's great. Uh, for me, it's, it's always worth taking the risk. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've taken risks that were foolish and, and just been lucky. And that was one of them. That was one of them. When I got back, when we got back from that trip, and I was talking to the German guest house owner at the place I was staying. And he said, you did what? You took one of these local fishing boats? They're not built. They don't have the power and the, and the maintenance to be able to get out past the bay into open sea. You know, you risked everyone's life by doing that. Well, it wasn't my idea, only my idea, by the way. It was like we came up, me and these other backpackers came up with it together. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Stupid. you don't know what you don't know, right? That's right. <laughs> you hadn't I'll do your, more research next yeah. time. We'll never take, a, never charter a boat without doing a lot more research. You hadn't built your career on uh, sailing at that point, right? That's right. <laughs> we'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible? cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip 
Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. I mean, you could always look back in time, right, and say like, oh, that was the golden age of travel or that's when it was like so much better. But you truly can say there is a huge difference between pre-smartphone travel and post-smartphone travel. What are your thoughts on on travel in the modern age in that way, having having been out in the world in the way that you had for so many years. And now, like you said, a lot of people are tethered to the smartphones and Instagram, social media, and all this stuff. Um, how has that changed the travel experience uh, uh, for you? For I mean, just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, technology has ma- made a huge difference. And uh, I'd say mostly for the better. I mean, you know, people are more informed by the time they get to a place, if they want to be. I mean, some people just are determined to stay ignorant. But let's, let's say the people who are, you know, what I call them, people looking for a true cultural experience or really or, or true just a hundred percent experience they're not trying to transport their comfort from uh, you know Manhattan directly to <laughs> right. uh, to uh, Zambia or whatever um, culturally insulated travel is what I call that but uh, so the technology is able to prepare more actually be more knowledgeable maybe more culturally sensitive and maybe even more environmentally sensitive because you'll know that you know this beach is uh, known for uh, pollution and Maybe you could do something, but I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that. But uh, you know, it can, that's 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 the good side. And the other other another good point I know for the, for myself, for example, when I was in India last year. Um, I wanted to get away. I was in Jaipur for a conference, and then I wanted to see something. I wanted to get off the beaten track, you know, in in Jaipur. And I really, I mean, in Rajasthan. And I just used my GPS to like find a place, and you know, I'd find places that were within a certain radius, and then. Then I looked at a little stuff on the internet, and I found a town that looked pretty good. And then, and then when I got to that town, I loved it. And then I looked for more small, but and I, I ran out of small towns to explore in the immediate vicinities. But the GPS still worked. You could still you could still find your way to the next village. And and you could not only that, you could be in the village, and if you got you know, you kind of had some sense of where the streets were going, and maybe get a little bit lost. So it, because of that, I was able to actually go a little deeper, a little more off the beaten track because of the technology. It gives you a little bit of a I guess you could call it a safety net and the information. Um, now, the downside is it means that the whole experience seems slightly less of a, you don't really get that sense of the unknown as much, going into the unknown. Um, you know, when I was gone, when I was going into Burma for, for four months, I was out of touch with the outside world. You know, there was obviously, there was no internet then to begin with, and I wasn't able to get any phones or mail, figured about that, telegraphs, all of that, gone. So the sense of really experiencing and leaving everything else behind was much greater. And that made the experience a little more pure in a way, not pure, what's the word? Intense, maybe would be the word. You kind of, you really kind of, you couldn't just like, oh, I think, I think, I think I'll check my Instagram, my social media, and then everything else dissolves. And nothing dissolved. You were always there in it until you fell, fell asleep and into your dreams, shall we say. So that's, I think that's the downside. Yeah. You used the word pure, then retracted it. And that that's the word I would use, right? Like, and maybe that's just me being, again, rose-tinted glasses. 
and thinking about and, and, and you know it's probably because sometimes my own habits with it are so bad that's like i i just miss my former self right <laughs> it's just like it's it's because it's your own responsibility i mean you can it's a tool that you can choose to use however you want and sometimes we all don't use it in a smart way even though it's supposed to be smart <laughs> yeah it requires it, you know, i think it's it's worth you know reviewing one's usage of that kind of stuff tech and technology and social media and then you know say okay you know what i probably should i don't need to instagram the photo i just took right now i can sit down and do that tomorrow or tonight or even next week like you know it's funny how i'll be walking around with friends somewhere certain friends and uh hey, we're having a nice walk you know we take a photo and then all we have to wait for one friend because he's back there he's, he's just he's compelled to put it post at that moment so we're waiting he's got to edit the photo you know crop it come up with a witty caption get the hashtags and we're like come on yeah <laughs> you know so who I, you know, are friends <laughs> people need to look at that kind of behavior i think a little more be a little more introspective yeah just yeah. For, for their own good too because i'm thinking to myself is he enjoying this i don't know it's like he's documenting it and showing it off and it's not really he's not really here yeah <laughs> i mean we spend a lot of screen time in front of the screens now for work for uh you know, now they're with us all the time. So, man, it just always feels so good to me when, like, I took a long walk into the city the other day and it was just like, there was just none of that. It was just like, hey, let me just walk for a couple hours and just look at things. And it, it just feels good to kind of be in the world that way. And it's like, oh, we well, have to make the, it feels like you have to make the effort to do that. Whereas that really should be our natural sort of inclination or our, it should be like our default setting, not our like, our other right. setting as humans, right. you know, I agree. having spent so much time in Asia and all your experience and background, I'm, I'm guessing some of the strong interest came from Eastern philosophy. Is that something that, uh, you practice that, that you, well, it definitely, it, it's, it definitely drew me here in the first place. As I mentioned that book by Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the monk, the famous monk, that book, I mean, that kind of crystallized it at that point. But even before that, I mean, while I was doing my degree at the Quaker College, part of the, I don't want to say indoctrination, anyway, part of the Quaker education involved, they're really into quick modern Quakers. They're really into comparative religion. You know, they're, they're not, you know, they're probably the least dogmatic Christian sect there ever existed. And so, you know, part of my requirements, course requirements were Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy, Buddhism. I had several courses like this, different Eastern religion. And that made me curious. You know, they were, they were mandatory courses. So. I could have just been bored out of my mind, but I actually found it interesting. And the other thing was my father had been um, stationed, he was in the Pacific Theater during World War II, and so he had a lot of, you know, he was he was the actual wartime part. He was in the islands of Japan and that area, and uh, he was in Okinawa and Guadalcanal, that area. And then post-World War II, he was part of U.S. troops that spent many months in China, marching from the south up to Tianjin. And so he came back with uh, all kinds of strange little baubles from the East, you know, that he stuffed into his his duffel bag, I guess. So I remember there was like a Chinese lamp and, you know, these little little statues of Buddha and things like that. And he wasn't, he wasn't an Asian, he wasn't particularly interested in Asian culture. He just picked that stuff up. And uh, I think maybe being an infant, you know, a kid is six, seven years old. I remember just be looking at those objects. You know how kids just get fascinated by something. So I don't know, that might've put some interest in Eastern philosophy as well. As far as practice goes, um, when I, after I read that book by Buddha Dasa, 
I um, determined, I, I made a vow to myself that I would meet him someday. And I, I did finally. So during that same trip where I did the first Lonely Planet Guide, research for the first Lonely Planet Guide, and the field studies I was doing for my degree, my um, my final paper there was on uh, communist views, communist insurgency views in Thailand and Malaysia about tourism in the future under a communist regime. And I got it all from like VOA. It was like you know, People's Liberation Army of Thailand radio broadcast when they would touch on tourism. It's funny because they were all, they had said there's already had policy laid out for tourism, for Buddhism also. I was very interested about post-communist Buddhism, for example. And um, so when I went, I met, so I stayed with Buddha Dasa during that period. And he, like, he wasn't that famous. The place is really remote down in Suen Mok, down in Southern Thailand. And uh, he taught me to meditate. And more than that, and then I had a practicing meditation with a few other monks here and there along the way not not very not that seriously but yeah it, you know it's good to do once in a while but he it just his way of understanding the world and he he was a man of few words he never smiled but he said to me once in a while it would just stop me in my tracks and I, to this day i you know, a few of those can you give it a, yeah can you give a couple well, one of them is the one of them is the one i closed the cnn article with which cnn tells me they get so much feedback comment a positive comment on that where he said to me, one time he just stopped. I hadn't talked to him that much about traveling. You know, I wasn't saying like, I'm a travel fanatic. Or, you know, I mean, I guess he just sort of assumed it. And I did tell him about the Lonely Planet contract. And I said, I'm going to do this thing with this new company and it looks promising. And, uh, but at one, he, one time he stopped, we were taking a, a walk in the woods and he stopped and said, you know why you like to travel? And I said, no. He says, because everywhere you go, you don't own anything. When you're at home, you feel burdened by all your stuff. When you travel, you leave it all behind. That's why you like it. He didn't say it that pleasantly, though. <laughs> he said it like in an accusing way. Right. Like, you, like you idiot. Right. You have to travel to realize that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is one of the, the beautiful lessons that came out of travel, for me at least, is the minimalism and, yeah, kind of not, um, not needing much to be happy you know coming from a such a consumer society consumerist society and in the u.s it was just such a dramatic dramatically different experience from what i was raised on in suburban philadelphia you know have you found that you know having your time all the time you've had in asia and, and all the studying you've done and, and interactions like this with a uh, Buddha Dasa, uh, is that am I saying that correctly? Yes. Have you had any sort of fundamental shifts in your mindset, like having been out of the U.S. for so long and living in a foreign culture that you've noticed? Yeah, for sure. I, I think one of the early on, I remember thinking because in my early travels as a leisure traveler and then later as a guidebook writer, I remember you know there was a like preparing for the trip and thinking about the trip, you project the trip. And I always thought of it at, at back down, but think of it as like, I'm leaving this world, I'm going to that world. And that world's so cool. Now, and then, but, but it quickly after when I was doing a professional, I was just traveling and changing countries and cities all the time. And then I realized, you know what, you know, going from one country to the next one culture, it's really just like walking from one room to the other in a house. You know, that, that aspect of me entering another world kind of wore off in a way. And, uh, but but for the I'm not not as a negative. I don't mean that as a negative. But it also meant that I could function more. I could be more more aware. I could function. My my I didn't I didn't like ooh, 
and I just like keep my I could keep my thing together, you know, which was good. I could get my work done a little bit better. I wasn't so intoxicated by the, by the surroundings, you know. And then uh, what was the other big thing I was going to say that changed? Oh yeah, being outside of the U.S. Where, where does this podcast go? I guess it goes everywhere. It's, it's international. Yeah. Are most of your listeners in the States? Would, there are a lot know? in the States, but it, it is, yeah. they are all over the world. And, and some of them are American travel, traveling all over the world. So, Because yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to insult anyone when I say this, but the longer I'm out of the U.S., the more I've up that country seems to me. I mean, politically, but also just culturally. And, you know, I'm a product of that, of that culture. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not super anti-American. I'm very, very negative on it, but it's just... It's just looking worse all the time. It actually came to mind when I was reading, when I'm doing my research now for this Bourdain story. Um, Bourdain was saying the same thing for years, you know, as an American traveling around. It was just, he had a very dark, pessimistic view about the future of America. And I feel like some of the words he was saying in interviews, I was just reading one 2016 the other day. And it was like so prophetic. I mean, uh, you know, he... Trump has just been elected. You know, I don't want to make a political video. And it wasn't all about Trump either. It was actually about you know the cultural norm that you know, that, that, that created Trump, as they say. And um, yeah, he was prophetic. He was, it was yeah. So I I'm, you know I've gone through some of the, the same things. And now I feel I feel I'm I'm glad not to be living in the states. Uh, I'm working on Thai citizenship now. I hope to get it in the next year or so. And uh, then I won't have to keep my American passport. I probably will. You know, I, I don't want to renounce my citizenship, but I'll, maybe I won't renew it because I, I don't really have plans to go back. I might go back. I have one family member left in the States, a younger sister. And, you know, I'd like to, she's been over. She came over actually last year, she and her husband. So I, I should probably make a trip there. I haven't been in six years now. Maybe yeah, okay. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah, it's, uh, I love my home country, America, where I come from. And I, I obviously I wouldn't be who I am without being raised there. And there's certain American things that I just love. And that's great. I think growing up in any country, I'm sure you're just kind of like, that's what you're familiar with. So it's really hard to see it with a fresh perspective. But then when you leave and, and obviously that it's changing like every place all the time, but you, you, you see, you know, especially living in Norway, like how there are a lot of systems here that are set up better to more support people in, in a different way. In the U.S., it's maybe more like a every man for himself kind of situation on, on like a mass level, but then on like a neighborhood level, everybody's so friendly and will help each other out. So, you know, they're, they're I guess just, the more though, I guess the more social and government support you get, the less you need to depend on your neighbors. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That could be a thing, which maybe would explain some of the, like the less, you know, they're less inclined here to kind of just chat each other up on the streets or whatever, which is a cultural thing. So, I mean, there are, yeah, yeah, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I could say like, I don't think either of us are poo pooing the U S but we're just taking an honest. You're just able to take, I I guess I would say you're just able to take a more honest look at where you come from when you leave. That's sort of the, and it's funny how people back in the States who don't travel at all or not much, don't really get that. They just they, they just think you're being negative because you're nasty or something. You know, you're, you're just seeing it like it is. You know, I mean, every country has its good side and its bad sides. Right, and I mean, I've gone to, I've visited plenty of countries like you who have, uh, you know, they they've got their own messed up situations. But because you're you're traveling through and you're seeing the best of it, and you're having that, like like you described before, like maybe you're having that shiny object syndrome. Like you're going, every place is new, and you can kind of 
forget about yourself because everything's so exciting and new. It, it, it kind of like lets you get lost in it. And like we've been traveling around a lot, like you've been, like you said, it kind of, I think you get to be more who you are while you're traveling in some ways because you're not distracted by uh, like all the newness. Like even going into a new grocery store in a new country is always like a magnificent experience, right? Yes. <laughs> Just yeah, looking yeah. around and. It's true. It's a good point. Yeah. This must have been a thrill for me. I know you're working on this Bourdain piece and you mentioned him being a hero to you. And I know you play music. I'm guessing you still play guitar. I, I play a pretty crappy yep. guitar. I saw a picture on your website. It was you and I, sh- I should mention the website again, joecummings.com with two M's. And uh, Such it, was, a bad website. it was you and Mick <laughs> Jagger hanging out. Yep. Uh, that was back in the day. I know. But what was that experience like? It was great. It was really good. It was really, uh, it was really easy going. It was, um, yeah, it went very smoothly. And we ended up hanging out several more times after that, which I, I only wrote about that one experience because the rest of it's private as far as I, I mean, I, I originally met him. I was hired to do some consulting on a documentary behind the scenes during that tour. And that's why I was there. But um, but then after that, when he would come to Thailand, he would call me up and then we would just hang out. And same in New York. And uh, I took, took him around Southeast Asia. So um, yeah, I got to know him pretty well, I guess. I mean, one call him a friend or something, but, uh, and I've had no contact with him since around 2014. But uh, yeah, it was really cool. He was really, he's super bright, really, really bright, very considerate, at least around, you know, as Provana, I saw very considerate people around him, aware that, you know, his, his fame is kind of freaks people out a little bit. But uh, for me, I didn't, I didn't let it happen. I, I don't know how, but it's just, I just saw the human in him right away. I just stuck to that. But, um, yeah, really well read. I mean, he took me up to his suite at the Oriental Hotel and he had stacks of reference books about Thailand and some of the other countries. Not just, he had a, guide, a lot of guidebooks. He had like, I counted like 11 guidebooks. He must have, you know, a trunk that he carries. It's like 11 guidebooks and um, several that I'd written. And then he, but he had like history books of, on Cambodia. And, you know, he was like really, really into it. Yeah. It yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's appreciated that you see somebody for we're all just human right we all put our pants on one leg at a time and all that good stuff all those cliches are true Uh, (laughs) but it's you know it's experiences like this that i mean i always find thinking back i mean if you don't put yourself out into the world then you're guaranteed to not ever meet a mick jagger or you know like these things won't happen unless you kind of take chances you know, people want to quit their jobs and travel or somebody listening to this, maybe they're like wanting to travel or not sure how to get into it or whatever. What advice would you give? Uh, well, it depends on what they want to get out of it. If they, um, I would say if they just have a strong desire to travel, they just want to, you know, some people will quit their jobs. They'll save some money, quit their, job, quit their jobs and then travel for a year. And I think, I think that's really worth doing, even if it means you might not get another job for a while when you get back. I think that's worth the risk. I'm a risk taker, you know, but uh, I would take that risk. I would, and I would advise people to do that. That's one thing. Um, you know what I mean? With, uh, unadv- I would, with no reservations, I would advise that. Uh, no matter what your skills are, what level of, you know, what, le- what, what, what profession you're in, everyone should take a year off and travel. And if you can get a year off from your job and come back to it, even better. But if you have to give up your job, it's still worth it, in my opinion. Now, the other thing is when people say they want to quit their job and find some way to make a living from travel which a lot of bloggers, you know, are trying, sort of like selling these days, you know, how they, you know, and then they even s- sell courses after they have a certain number of thousands of followers and they take it upon themselves to be like an instructor and how you two can quit your job and live the life of, uh, 
a perfect life on the road. And I think that's bullshit. Because either those people have other income or they're working so hard day and night that they're, they're not really living the life. They're, they're doing SEO constantly, you know, constantly doing uh, keywords and, and oh, you know what I mean? You have to, it's a lot of work to get, to get successful at doing that. So I'm, I'm negative on that thing, you know, quit your job, become a blogger or an Instagram or an influencer or whatever. Um, if someone says they want to be a travel writer and want to do what I've done and make a career out of it, then I'm, I'm cautious. I advise it, but with caution, I would say, you know, do it part time at first, you know, with your own. Don't just give everything up and count on it. And then take a lot of writing courses. Master the skill of writing first before you start going. You know, you, you need to be able to travel to write, not write to travel. That's, I think, a lot of people that think they dream of being a travel writer. They want to write just so they can travel. That's not going to work because no one's going to read your writing because it's not going to be good enough. You got to travel to write. You got to be so good. You have to get at the top. You have to be like in the top 1% just to make a living, I say, in travel writing. So, uh, I, you know, I say do it, but you have to take it real seriously. Take the writing part really, really seriously. That's great advice. I found that one of the greatest joys in life really is to try to hone a craft. You know, writing, playing guitar, songwriting, whatever, any, any hobby or podcasting, like doing these interviews for the last seven years. It's it's a craft that you're just constantly working on. There's no you can never get to like a, a top of a pyramid because it doesn't exist. But it's such a joy to try to improve in that way. I think and 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 the process. If you could do anything over again, would you do anything differently? Well, I got my contract with Lonely Planet would have been a little more ironclad on that royalty clause. <laughs> okay, That's, yeah, that, that would be number one. Yeah, that would yeah. be number one. Um. Otherwise, not really, you know, I've, I've, I, I, by lucky happenstance, circumstance, everything's kind of worked out fine. I never had a, you know, I didn't have a, what do you call it, a, a game plan. I just, you know, I just wanted to be out there traveling. I wanted to be writing. I wanted, you know, just taking jobs here and there. I, you know, I met like Mick Jagger and other people like that. So it wasn't like, none of us planned. It's just, you know, I say that, that's, that's stupid, you know, in new age slogan or follow your bliss. I did that, I guess. I guess that's what I did. I hate to term it that. And it's also, that sounds so selfish to me. Uh, I like to think that I did some social good along the way, you know, preparing people for places they were going and supporting travel businesses on the other end and all that. But wasn't that, wasn't that part of your bliss, right? I mean, doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that sounds selfish because it's, it's all mixed in, right? Right. Yeah. What do you think, the future of travel looks like uh, in terms of post pandemic travel. Do you have any, you want to play the futurist for a couple minutes? And yeah. It's really hard. Of course. It's, we, we, none of us actually knows. Right. But, yeah. uh, but, um, two things that I think I can predict pretty safely is that the way people choose, once we can really travel, you know, it's going to be very restrictive for a while, not just in the qualitative aspect of, uh, having to respect social distancing and bookings on airlines and, you know, one every other seat vacant. Okay, there's 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 that, uh, and then there's also the restriction in which countries will be open first. But let's just move ahead to where it's pretty much the whole world's open. You can go anywhere you want, and with, with maybe a few restrictions. When is when we get to that point, what I think one thing we're going to see is that people have changed their travel plans. They will they won't be going back as much to the same old place that that was sort of their happy place. 
you know, where they, we always do the beach vacation in April here, and we always do the ski resort in November here. I think people will be a little more bucket list oriented. You know, you, you usually think of older travelers as thinking, you know, I got to get to these places before I die. But I think now people of all ages, leisure travelers of all ages will be thinking, you know, before the next pandemic, well, I, I need to see the stuff I really need to see and not waste my time. It's not wasting, but not spend my time so much going over the same ground. So I think it's going to, what do you call it? It's going to mix it up for people. It's going to give, it's going to, well, I can't think of the term right now, but it's I mean, kind of motivate them a little bit more to go to yeah, sort of places. Like, it's like throws, throw the cards in the air a little bit. So it's like a little, they'll be more, um, yeah, they'll refine their bucket list. Okay. If I had to, yeah. Like cool. They'll be a little more urgent too. I got to get to this place. I know that's what it's done for me. You know, I, I'm like, now I'm planning a trip to Tunisia and Algeria when I can, when that's happening. Cause I've, I've been wanting to go to those two countries for a long time. And now I'm, now I'm determined to get there as you know as soon as possible. Yeah. I would be a fool if I didn't ask you a little bit about Thailand before I let you go. If we want to experience the real Thailand, what what's your advice? And, and whether it's a destination or destinations or certain things to do or a certain amount of time to spend. I mean, whatever. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I would say one thing is the mode of travel instead of flying around or taking these horrible air-conditioned tour buses, take the train, because the train you get, you hang out with the you know the local people, and it's like a whole scene, it's a whole subculture in itself. Actually, train travel, and it's almost a destination in itself. Train travel. I, just, I think it's a great way to like immerse yourself into Thailand to take the trains because it's still very old-fashioned. The train system. Have you taken trains in Thailand? Yeah, I took one up to. I don't think it was too far, but Sukhothai from Bangkok. Yeah. How far is that? Yeah. I don't that's, yeah, that's a good one day. That's like, you know, six hours. Yeah. Hours, eight I, hours I love taking trains. I mean, I love the sound of them. Yeah. I love the scene. Yeah. I love the, the feeling of the air, everything about it. I, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so you know, that's what I'm So that, that would be one way. Just take the train and take it and then take it on lines maybe that aren't to the major destination. If you take the Chiang Mai line, which is probably the one you took, you're going to see a lot of tourists. They're going to put you in a car with tourists. They know probably if they identify you as a tourist when you're buying a ticket. This was in like and, 99. Uh, I don't know what it was like then, but uh, okay. It was probably, it was probably more. It was probably better than in terms of not seeing so many other travelers. But, so uh, yeah, tr- get on train, take them on the lines that aren't going to Chiang Mai or to where else, uh, that any place that's like a major tourist station, take it up to Isan, to Northeastern Thailand, take trains. There's three different lines into the Northeast. Northeast, first of all, is a great place to be off the beaten track. Only 2% of all travelers statistically, on average, visit the northeastern Thailand. It's 19 provinces that are it's incredible archaeological, uh, architectural uh, sites there, and natural sites, national parks, rivers, etc., mountains, limestone caves. There's plenty to see. It's not like it's not neglected because there's nothing to see. It's just people are going for the beaches and the mountains, beaches and mountains. And I kind of avoid the beaches. Although, you know, maybe built in some beach time if you like if you like beaches, but don't center your trip around beaches. Um, and then there's pockets of southern Thailand that I find very very interesting. It's funny how southern Thailand has been neglected, except for Samui, Gasamui, and the provinces next to Suratani, and then Phuket, of course, and then Grabi next to Phuket. All the rest of northern Thailand is really untouristed. It might have similar statistics as northeast. It might be single-digit percentages of tourists. And uh, I was just down. That's where I did my shelter-in-place. I did seven weeks. I rented a house on the beach in Drang for seven weeks. So I, you know, I kind of like 
was the longest time I'd spent in that province. And I, I, I'm in love with it now. It's like a new, a new love for me. And so I really encourage people to go down there too. All these fishing villages. It's a very traditional way of life still. I love that, that you can have so much experience in, in that part of the world and still go down and fall in love with a new place, right? Yeah. That is a sure. beautiful thing. What are yeah. you most proud of looking back at uh, like your career, the traveling you've done, just kind of life in general? Um, I'm, you know, writing-wise, my, my two biggest accomplishments by my own, you know, according to me, are uh, two coffee table books. I've done like 25 coffee table books. That's some of them very inconsequential, just work for hire. But the ones that I were driven by me, projects driven by me. Um, and it, I, I really love the research. I love the way I was able to dig deep into these subcultures. One is uh, on the sacred tattoos of Thailand, you know, traditional Thai tattoos. I don't know if you can see any here, but, and which is a really interesting, I mean, everyone's sort of acquainted with it, but I mean, it's a deep, deep underworld, shall we say. Shall we say. So I, for 18 months, I traveled around Thailand visiting masters and talking to disciples and learning about what everything means, how the system works. And uh, so the result was this book, Sacred Tattoos of Thailand. I'm very proud of it because it's, I think it's you know fairly well written, but it's it's original research. It's it, it's stuff about that culture. That you, put, you put your like serious you, journalistic hat on and yeah, went for and, it, right? And, and, <laughs> and academic, even academic, because it's a it's research that you won't find anywhere else. Not even in, I've read every Thai language book there was on the subject, and and I went beyond that. You know, if I can be immodest for a moment. So it's a piece of original research that I think will stand the test of time, and people will be reading it. I hope after I'm gone. So I'm proud of that one. Another book on Buddhist stupas that I did way back in the year 2000. It's out of print now. Um, kind of hard to find. But I did similarly, I took the topic of Buddhist stupas, you know, those conical-shaped monuments in all the Buddhist temples in, from Afghanistan to Japan. And I worked with a very good photographer, and we traveled everywhere in Buddhist Asia and uh, produced this book, Incredible Photography. And again, I, I wanted to find out, I wanted to, discover an integrated system for what draws this whole thing together all not artistically, uh, ecologically, spiritually, you know, theologically. And, and I did it. Like I, I achieved that goal. Again, I came up with an integrated theory of Buddhist stupid construction and design that never existed before. I mean, that you can't find any in any other books. And again, I hope that will be read after I die. So those are the two pieces of writing I'm most proud of. That's and they, you know, they're not necessarily the best-selling stuff I've ever done. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, congratulations. It's a, such a wonderful feeling, I imagine, to put your heart and soul into something like that and know that you know, you've know you created something that can live on beyond you. Yeah, um, to do something new, satisfying. to actually do, to do something original, do re original research of any kind. It's kind of, you know, when I was doing my master's degree, it was like that was the, they were always holding up, well, this guy did the first research on this. Right. And I, you know, I never, I never really think, I never thought I'd ever have that opportunity to apply that kind of a discipline to things, but I, I did twice. Yeah, it's interesting how prior experience in life can kind of all of a sudden come into play later in life. You know, it's like it, now you're taking your academic background from way back then and integrating that into your work. And uh, I really think everything you do has value, and uh, you never know how that is going to play out in, in different times true. of life. Very well, true. I mean, this was such a blast. Same I can't here. tell you much, how much I enjoyed this conversation and you can check out, uh, Joe's website at joecummings.com and, uh, you can search for his name anywhere. You can get books. If you, if you want to check out some of the books you mentioned, yeah. Am I missing anything? Do you want to share any like 
social media things or anything like that. Can we have you back on, man? Can can we have you? I mean, we, we gotta, we probably should do a whole episode on Thailand, right? I mean, this is like, whenever, whenever. Yeah. We kind of talked about, you know, few destinations here or there, but clearly there's a lot to talk about culturally, spiritually, travelly. I'll say travelly. For sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's it's a reason why Thailand is so popular. It's, you know, the variety here is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can do it in person. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll come up to Oslo. Fingers do it. Hey man, shoot over from Sweden, man. It'd be great. Because I have friends. I have friends in Oslo too, musician friends. So. Okay. Uh, Hey man, I got a guitar. If we can do some jamming. I mean, uh, I'm more of a three chord guy, you know, but you play lead, right? So we could figure something out. I bet you know where to hear live music in Oslo. Yeah. I know a few spots. That's what I, that's what you gotta do for me. Come on over, man. All right. As soon as they have live music again. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, we'll chat soon. All right. Thank you, Jason. Take care. See ya. you have it. Special thanks once again to Joe Cummings for stopping by today's show. Like I said, awesome, cool guy, right? Hope you enjoyed listening in on our conversation. I had a blast. I didn't want it to end. I wanted to just, if I could like somehow zip through the computer screen and just keep hanging out with Joe and having some meals and some beers with him and cruising around Thailand, man, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Uh, Maybe one day they'll invent those teleportation devices or something. Imagine if you had one of those for the day. What would you do? Where would you go? What would you eat? The possibilities are endless. Right now, I'd probably... I don't know, cruise somewhere warm with a white sand beach and, uh, you know, the prototypical sort of beach vacation place. It doesn't even have to be off the beaten path, really. I could just sit on a lounge chair and uh, have a margarita or something, uh, some kind of cold drink in my hand and just hear the sound of the ocean. That sounds pretty good right now. Thank you so much once again for listening. I'm going to leave you with this quote from Doug. Zenji who said if you cannot find the truth right where you are where else do you expect to find it thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time peace and love this podcast has been brought to you by zero to travel.com ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality 